Today I'd like to welcome for the second time this year, uh, Dr. Larry Weiss. Uh, Dr. Weiss got his uh, MD uh, at Hahnemann Medical College. Um, that was after his undergraduate degree at Northwestern and uh, uh, where he actively supported their football team and, uh, for many decades and hopefully will one day have a uh, successful end to the season. <laughs> he um, was on faculty for a number of years um, in, emer in emergency medicine at University of Pittsburgh, um, went down to LSU. He decided to go into uh, law there where he got his JD at Loyola University in New Orleans. He uh, practiced law for 10 years in, in the New Orleans area and before coming uh, to Baltimore in 2006 where he's been on faculty in our emergency medicine department. He's played an instrumental role uh, in the department to uh, address so many different legal issues that certainly arise on a regular basis down there and, um, and has been a wonderful educator and uh, clinician here. So thank you, Dr. Weiss, for coming. Well, thanks, Mike. Um, I'm, I'm honored to be your speaker today. Uh, you know, wearing this uh, microphone and having Sam Tisherman in the audience, I got to tell you a Ron Stewart story. And <laughs> Sam remembers Ron Stewart. He was unforgettable. Uh, Ron, he was the chair of emergency medicine at Pitt, and he was a great guy, a little eccentric. And one of his eccentricities was that he loved to sing opera in the men's room. And so he was in a room like this, and he had this lavalier mic on, and he was there early, and he went to the men's room, and he started singing Verdi, and he came back in the room to a standing ovation. He didn't realize why. So I'm always careful when, uh, when I have one of these on. All right, so we're going to talk about informed consent. And this is an area of law that is almost entirely based on state law. So except for discussing one US Supreme Court decision, we're going to entirely be discussing uh, state law. And when we talk about informed consent, these are court-made rules in every state. So we're going, to look at, we're going to be looking at three landmark decisions from Maryland's highest court, the Court of Appeal. So the courts in Maryland have funny names. In almost every state, the highest court is the state Supreme Court. Here it's the Maryland Court of Appeal, and it's down in, in Annapolis, in downtown Annapolis. So my objectives are for you to understand the general rules of informed consent and especially to understand the holdings, the rulings from these Court of Appeal cases. And then for you to understand some special areas of concern under this topic, like surrogate consent, end of life consent, and medical futility, which believe it or not is directly addressed by Maryland statutes. So let's talk about some general rules. When a patient comes to a hospital, they sign a general consent. That allows us all to do whatever is standard, routine, and without significant risks. For everything else, we should be getting specific consent. Now, we have to get consent from every patient on virtually everything we do, but there are exceptions. Uh, one exception that we frequently resort to is the emergency consent doctrine. That if someone's wheeled into your ICU and they're unconscious, 
and there's no one from the family around and they're in shock, you've got to start making interventions, even procedures, a central line, intubate, and you don't bother getting written consent. You've got to react immediately and every court in the country will presume that if someone's rushed into your unit, they're brought there so that you can save their life, okay? But when you're able to get consent, you, you do so. If you want to go back and get deferred consent later, uh, it just shows that you were concerned enough to inform the family and to have them on board, but it's not really required in an emergency. Another exception is called the implied consent doctrine, and there's a famous case of immigrants getting off a ship and getting inoculated in New York on Ellis Island, and the plaintiff in this case, she was in line, she raised her arm, got the injection, and then had some kind of side effect ensued, okay? And the holding in that case was she provided implied consent. She got in line, she raised her arm. I had to defend a case where a woman said that she was molested because our physician performed a pelvic exam. But she came into the ED, she signed a general consent. For a woman with lower abdominal pain, a pelvic exam is a necessary routine part of the exam. She got in the lithotomy position, she consented for the whole exam. She provided implied consent. She also signed a general consent form when she came in, so that claim went nowhere. Now, patients have a near absolute right to refuse. And I wish we could talk about the Cruzan case because this is the only time the US Supreme Court directly visited issues of medical consent. And one of the many important things the court said, and they said this over and over again, there were, there were five different opinions written by the nine justices. They really, they didn't agree on the rationale for their conclusions, but just about all of them agreed that patients have a liberty interest in refusing medical care. Now, what does that mean? Liberty is the right to be left alone. In one word, it's the most important reason why we fought our revolution. And so a lot of legal commentators will say that this is the most basic fundamental right that we all have under the US Constitution. So you really can't violate someone's liberty interests. If they say they don't want you to do something and you feel they have decision-making capacity, which we'll talk about later, um, you can't do it, okay? We, don't, we no longer have this paternalistic relationship with patients. Patients have rights, and this is a near absolute right, again, with these exceptions, being incompetent patients. We'll talk about incompetency later. And if you feel a patient is suicidal, they pose an appreciable suicidal risk. Maryland has a law that says that um, if a patient refuses further medical care, that you have a duty not to provide that care, and you also have an affirmative duty to transfer the patient to another physician. If the, if the patient asks for that, it's, it's a duty. You have to do that. So the Maryland law doesn't like squarely address this issue. It just says the patient can refuse and you should transfer the patient to the care of another physician if you can't get them to agree to your care plan. Now, what do we have to disclose? I know that 100% of you are familiar with the information on this slide. You have to disclose the procedure, the alternatives, the risks. But you know what? You could spend five hours going through all 280 risks of a simple procedure. So what risks must you disclose? This is the landmark case in 
Maryland, Sard v. Hardy, and legal commentators refer to what they call modern consent theory. And Maryland entered the era of modern consent with this case, Sard v. Hardy in 1977. The facts of the case are not really exciting. The fact that it's an OB case doesn't matter. The holding, the ruling in the case directly applies to you in the ICU. So Mrs. Sard was pregnant and had her delivery by C-section. And during the C-section, the obstetrician performed a bilateral tubal ligation with her consent. She later got pregnant. She sued him for malpractice and that claim went nowhere. So then she sued for improper consent. At the time, this was a very novel idea. It was a creative move by her attorney. He said, well, you know, he just stuck a piece of paper in front of her and told her to sign it. I was a medical student in the late 1970s. That's the way we got consent. The attending would give me, the medical student, the consent form and tell me to just put it in front of the patient, have the patient sign it. That was the consent process, okay? So, you know, as a result of this case, I think patients are better informed. They should be better informed. If you've got someone who lacks decision-making capacity, the family is better informed. And so I think these, these, these developments are good for patients, good for their families. So it's not something we should resist. So the major holding in this case is that we must disclose all material risks. And here the word material means significant. When is a risk significant? The court said that a risk is significant when a reasonable person in the patient's shoes would want to know about that risk before making a decision regarding informed consent. If you think a reasonable person would want to know that you could cause a pneumothorax when you put in a right IJ line, that's a risk you should disclose. Another important holding in this case, if a plaintiff can convince the jury that you failed to disclose a material risk, they don't win the case. They also have to convince a jury that a reasonable, prudent patient in their position would have refused the procedure if only they were told about this risk. So in this case, what happened was the court laid out the new rules, remanded the case, sent the case back to the trial court where it had to go through a jury trial. And you know, those opinions are never published, so I'm not sure what the jury decided. But this plaintiff would have had a very high burden. She would have had to convince the jury that she would not have consented to a bilateral tubal ligation during her C-section if she only knew that she had maybe a 1% chance of getting pregnant. You think that's likely? And what are the damages of giving birth to a healthy child? So I really don't think she did all that well in the trial court. I just, it's not part of the opinion, so I'm not sure how that worked out. So does everyone understand this? You have to disclose risks that a reasonable person would want to know before they consented to an LP or a central line or whatever, whatever other procedure you're performing. Does it, does it matter who obtains that consent? Does it it's a great question. It's such a great question that the next case answers the question. Here's the next case out of Mercy Hospital here in Baltimore. And you know what? It's okay to mention names because 
This is all part of the public record. Here, Dr. Dingle got consent from Mrs. Balin to perform a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. Okay, he had her sign the consent form. <clears throat> but the resident did the almost the entire procedure, cut the common bile duct, and she had unspecified damages and had all of her follow-up care at another hospital, and then filed a medical malpractice suit, which didn't go anywhere because this is a known complication of a laparoscopic cholecystectomy. So then they filed a claim for improper consent. And the plaintiff couldn't prove that he didn't read through everything on the consent form, but she said this was a breach of contract because the consent form is a contract between the patient and the physician, and he said he was gonna do the procedure, but a resident did the procedure. And here the court said that it must be disclosed exactly who is performing the procedure. It's always best for the senior person to sign the consent form, and he did that, but the patient claimed that he did not disclose that he would not do most of the work. So that's basically what you were asking. And I know how tough this is in a clinical setting, but whenever you're doing a procedure, the most senior person should have the patient sign the consent form. Our emergency department's always overcrowded, it's always hectic. When we're doing an LP, for example, I try to go in there, I write out the consent form, not because I don't want my resident to learn how to do it, I go through it with them, but I wanna be the one that has them sign the consent form and I'll put in writing who is primarily going to perform the procedure. That's the safest way to do it. I know that th there are times when it's hectic and your attending can't do it, but to send a medical student in to do it, it creates risks for you actually, okay? Um, because you want to make sure it's done right and courts in this state are going to say that you're the one who should have done it. I think a fellow is a pretty high person on the pecking order but the higher the person, the better um, to satisfy the opinion of this court. In the end, the court said, well, this plaintiff can't prove what Dr. Dingle went over verbally. She really is gonna have a, a, a tough time meeting her burden of proof. And so the court was a little generous to the surgeon because the, generous, the surgeon should have written down. If you write down, you put it in writing, who actually is gonna do the procedure, you get rid of this whole threat. Someone saying, you breached an agreement with me because you said you were gonna do it and someone else did it. If it was on the form that someone else is gonna do it, it obviates that whole cause of action for a plaintiff. So you're not saying medical students can't do procedures? Absolutely not. And I'm not even saying they can't have the patient sign the consent form but if I had a medical student working for me and I sent the medical student in, I would be magnifying my own risk because I wasn't the one that went over it with the, with the patient. How do I know exactly what the medical student disclosed? Now, along that regard, who's getting consent? What about the sort of preemptive consent? As an example, in our ICU, we have an ICU consent form that includes, while you're here, you may get that's fine. That kind of stuff that gets. That's fine, but this is amazing. So, okay. So Dr. Tishman asked, 
What about like preemptive consent? The patient gets admitted and you say, this is our care plan. We're probably gonna have to do this, 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 and that. You can do that. But you actually brought up the main issue of this next case, the McQuitty v. Spangler. <laughs> That's exactly what this court looked at, Dan. Just real quick, I think this, the, that last one is just enough to give the Department of Surgery a lecture because I can tell you 90% of the time and, and I realize that's not always possible for the attending to do it, but I, I think the important, the important point from the last case, the, the Balin case, is that you at least should put down on the consent form who is primarily going to perform the procedure, otherwise you're just magnifying your risk. You know, our goal, your goal through the rest of your career is to mitigate your risks, to lower your risks, not to magnify your risk. And sometimes it's less convenient to do some of these things, but you know, the last thing you want to do is magnify your risk in the world's most dangerous medical legal environment. Okay, 193 countries in the world, only one country has an ongoing liability crisis. It's us. I would love to talk about tort reform, but I would keep you here till midnight. So, Mike knows that. I've, I've done that to him. All right. Okay, so let's go to this third case, McQuitty v. Spangler, a case out of Franklin Square. It's another OB case. You know, obstetricians pay higher premiums than anyone in this state except neurosurgeons. It's just unfortunately a very risky field of practice. So here, uh, Mrs. McQuitty had a high-risk pregnancy. And you know, when you read the facts of these court opinions, they never give you and I enough medical information that we would want. They only provide enough medical information so an attorney reading the opinion can understand the reasoning of the court. So I can't tell you what was wrong with her. Maybe she was preeclamptic, but I would have to guess. So she was hospitalized for a month, okay? And he wanted to keep her in the hospital until the baby was mature enough for a C-section. Okay, I guess they did this LS ratio, it was too low. They wanted the baby's lungs to mature, and they were going to put off the C-section. And he got a consent for all that. He admitted her. He got all the consents for the C-section. We're going to do it at the optimal time. On the 29th hospital day, she developed an abruptio placenta and had to rush the kid, had to rush the patient to the labor suite, and he was born with cerebral palsy. Started out as a malpractice suit that went nowhere. And by the way, are you seeing a pattern here? All these cases, they start out as malpractice cases that really didn't go anywhere. And so then the plaintiff attorney takes a second bite at the apple and says, well, we're going to sue you for improper consent. You didn't do anything improper clinically. I mean, that's how important all this is. It's important for you to practice perfect medicine. You can still be sued when you practice perfect medicine. But this is becoming a more and more frequent cause of action for plaintiffs to say, okay, I had a bad outcome. It's, it's still your fault, even though there was no malpractice. I think you could have done a better job with the consent process. So here the plaintiff attorney argued that as she was in the hospital for 29 days, you should have renewed the consent process over and over and over again because the risk-benefit ratio was changing and the court agreed, okay? This was improper consent because you should have gone through the same 
consent process over and over again, and the court didn't say how often you had to do this. In other words, if this obstetrician renewed the consent process every week, according to the holding in this case, the plaintiff attorney could have argued you should have done it every day. If you renewed the consent process every day, the plaintiff attorney could say you should have done it every hour. It's at least an argument. I don't think a jury would buy that argument. But this, this case creates such open-ended liability. So to answer your question, if you got all these consents where the patient was admitted, as the risk-benefit ratio is changing, you've got to get the consent signed again. And this court didn't give us enough guidance to tell us how often we have to do this. I mean, so many OBGYNs in this case no longer deliver babies. When I read this opinion, I understood why. I don't think I would deliver a baby after reviewing this opinion. He kept the woman in the hospital for a month, rounded on her once or twice a day, and they, they found a problem with the consent process. And I think this holding applies to your setting. You have people in the ICU for a month. Things change, and when they change, you should probably go through the consent process again. And then there was, a, there was a battery claim here, and he said, well, I never performed the procedure till the 29th day, and it was proper, and she consented for it. And the plaintiff was saying it was battery because you should have renewed the consent. And the, the court didn't buy that. But it did say that the obstetrician should have uh, provided her with new information during the 29 days, and therefore he withheld information that would have changed her mind about consent. Um, I don't think any of you take care of children. If you do, there's a pretty detailed section in the handout. My email's at the top of the um, handout. And, and by the way, I don't represent the hospital. We have good, very good hospital counsel. If you have a legal issue on any specific case, you should contact hospital counsel. Someone's on call 24-7. I should tell you, by the way, I'm not a member of the Maryland Bar. I'm a member of the DC Bar and other jurisdictions. So nothing I'm telling you today is specific legal advice. This is just done for the purposes of CME. I usually, um, I usually say that in the beginning, but Mike got me all rattled when he talked about Northwestern and Notre Dame. And, all right. Okay. So really, anyone wants to talk about minor consent, there are a lot of issues, and I'm happy to I'll do that with you anytime. But to save time today, uh, I'd like to move on. So let's talk about surrogate decision-making. And Maryland actually has a very useful statute. It even gives us a pecking order. And I re reproduced the whole pecking order on page five of your handout at the top. And the statute says that if a patient lacks decision-making capacity, you can get consent from any number of people. And this doesn't just mean terminal and irreversible conditions, a patient who's dying. Sometimes you get overdoses. I know we send them up to the ICU, and in 24 hours, they might be lucid, awake and alert. And so while they're obtunded from this massive overdose, you can get consent from other people. Now, at the top of the pecking order is a healthcare agent. And a healthcare agent is someone designated in an advanced directive to make healthcare decisions for the patient. Uh, then a guardian appointed by the court. Like sometimes a family can't agree on what they want done. You can, someone can advise them to go to a magistrate, and there's always a magistrate on call. It's the same judge that issues arrest, arrest warrants, search and seizure warrants, okay? 
so they can make decisions like this. So someone can be appointed a guardian to make decisions for the patient as a surrogate. If there's no healthcare agent, no surrogate, then an adult spouse. I practiced most of my career in Louisiana. We were not always assured that the spouse was an adult. I had patients who had spouses that were under the age of 18. I haven't seen that here yet, but okay. And then after an adult spouse, children. Children outrank parents. Like if the patient's adult son is there and the father and they disagree, the proper surrogate is the child. However, it's got to be someone who knows what the patient wanted. In other words, the surrogate should not be deciding what the surrogate wants, what the surrogate thinks is right. The surrogate should be deciding what the patient wanted. So if the son comes in from California and hasn't spoken with his mother for 30 years, he's not in a good position to be a surrogate decision maker. And if another child disagrees, one of them can be appointed guardian. And it can be done fairly quickly. You know, anytime you send someone to a local court, the hospital counsel should be made aware. Okay. I would like to add that instead of going to court, if you have a dispute among uh, surrogates of equal priority, one could go to the ethics committee. That's right. Who would we contact for that? <laughs> <laughs> Do I have a Sorry for uh, Marissa. <laughs> you all have my number, I think. <laughs> the, the statute says you can refer it to the Patient Care Advisory Committee. That's what the statute refers to the committee. In our hospital, it's the Ethics Committee. And you do have people who respond quickly. Yes, we do. Yeah, it, works. it works very well. It's a great service to the hospital. So that is an option. Go to the Ethics Committee. They can often straighten it out. And the court should be an avenue of last resort. Don't you agree? So this is an area where the legislature really helped us. I think having this pecking order laid out, um, you know, in the handout, it's got the statute numbers. You can punch them into Google, and the statute should come up quickly. And you'll see the, you'll see the pecking order. You're not expected to run around the ICU being an attorney. We have legal counsel available get input for them. But if you want to do something simple like looking up this pecking order, you can bring it up on your computer within a minute. I, I do need to remind the fellows that we haven't gone as long about the, the legal uh, health care provider. Uh, we don't ask about that a lot. A lot of people do have them, and they forget to tell us about it. And a lot of times it's a different person. It's definitely a different person. Oftentimes it's not the children. It's the husband's spouse or something like that. It, it gets really dicey sometimes. So try to remember when you're asking about consent or about the family to find out if they do have a health care plan. that makes it easier Right, right. Much easier. So I got a little ahead of myself. Here's what Dr. Silverman was referring to. The Patient Care Advisory Committee should be your first avenue of resort. Here in our hospital, that would be the Ethics Committee. Another option is transferring um, a patient. If you can't agree with the surrogate, there's an option of transferring to another service or if they're stable to another hospital. This often isn't practical, but it's mentioned in the statute. And then go, getting a court order is really an avenue of last resort. Let's talk about um, advanced directives. And most states in this country passed laws in the early 1990s uh, encouraging state 
encouraging hospitals to have patients complete advanced directives. And here I think in Maryland, we also have a very good statute. It even has a form you can download from the statute. When I moved here 10 years ago, I found that statute, downloaded the form, filled in the blanks, changed a few things, and I have an advanced directive. I think we all should, okay? Um, and it tells you exactly how to have it done. Now, why did all this happen in the early 1990s? Because again, in the Cruzan case, uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, in her opinion, she said that substitute decision makers should have the power to make all decisions for an incompetent patient. And that really set off a chain of events where in most states, they passed these laws, and in Maryland, this was passed within a year of the Cruzan decision. And so Maryland has a statute incurring everyone in the state to have an appropriate, appropriately completed advanced directive signed by the patient and two witnesses. It doesn't have to be notarized. But, you know, the exact form is not that important because in Maryland, we also recognize verbal advanced directives. They're a little harder to prove, but if the patient states their preferences, the statute says in front of the attending physician and any other witness, then it becomes the duty of the physician to record that in the patient's chart, in the medical records. So advanced directives may be written or oral. The written form is preferable. It's a lot easier to convey that to subsequent caregivers, and it's easier to prove. But it can also be verbal. Uh, uh, just uh, one other point. I'm glad you brought up the verbal part. part. Um, just one minor detail. When the offending documents it in the medical record, it needs to be witnessed, the verbal part. Right. Right. There always has to be another witness there, not just the physician. For, for, the, um, for the verbal consent, especially when you're talking about surrogates, if a patient comes in and they and you're asking them, because I typically ask them, who would you want to make medical decisions for you, you know, in the event you can't do it for yourself, and a couple of times I've had them point out to girlfriends that they've had for many, many years, can you get in trouble if a family member comes in and they start disagreeing? You want to go, I mean, me as a physician wants to go with a girlfriend, and that's who the patient told me, but... That's a good question. At the very bottom of the pecking order, the very last person listed is a very close friend, and then it says a social worker or anyone else who would intimately be familiar with the patient's preferences. So if no one else is available, you can rely on someone like that. I thought you were going to ask what would happen if the surrogate says something that's in opposition to what's in the written advance directive, and that would be an example of a conflict that you would have to work out, maybe sending it to the ethics committee, and if you couldn't further work it out, you know, get a court order and have someone be designated as a guardian. What you're saying is if the patient says, I don't want the next in line surrogate, I want the person at the end of the page, I want my girlfriend to be my health care, then that move it up to the top. As long as the patient has decision-making capacity, it's controlling. And by the way, as long as a patient has decision-making capacity, they could say, don't follow my advanced directive. The advanced directive is totally inactive unless or until the patient loses the capacity to understand. That's what activates the advanced directive. 
and the patient can come in and say, I'm revoking my advance directive. I wrote it, I got it witnessed, I changed my mind. You know, you should somehow document mental status. You could do a Folstein mini mental status exam. I have some mini, mini batteries that I use. I'll be happy to talk to you about it later. Even if you wrote a simple conclusory statement. What's a conclusory statement? A statement with no evidence, but just a conclusion. For example, the patient clearly has the capacity to understand. That's better than writing nothing, okay? You know, three out of four times when a patient refuses medical care, the physician writes nothing about mental status. Whenever someone's refusing care or you've got them revoking what they wrote in writing, you should document mental status. By the way, I always, I always tell my residents, when you have someone sign out AMA, and I think this can also happen in the ICU, right? You're ready to downgrade them. They say, I'm leaving. As soon as someone signs out AMA, and this is part of the whole consent issue, they're revoking consent, you must make some statement about mental status. People who sign out AMA have a complication and they often sue you. It sounds outrageous, but it happens. When I litigated, I had six cases like that in 10 years, and it was a part-time practice. Um, it happens. What do you think happens when they have the first meeting with their attorney? The attorney says, we can't sue your doctor. You refuse medical care unless we claim that you were so confused they never should have let you leave. And you know what? That's a strong argument. Most people that sit on a jury are just good, common, ordinary people with a lot of common sense. They're not people who hang out in emergency departments or hospitals six or seven days a week. And they're gonna sit there and think, why did that guy rush down the hospital, down to the hospital, just to torture the nurses and the doctor and refuse medical care? He must have been confused. So really the burden in most cases is on you. You've gotta write something about decision-making capacity when you um, let someone leave. And you know what, to be honest with you, I'm usually so busy, I just write that conclusory statement, but that's better than the 75% of physicians who write nothing about mental status when they let someone leave AMA. Someone who deserts. Prior to desertion, I noted this patient to be awake, alert, and have the capacity to understand. See, that reflects the art of medicine, what you and I call gestalt, clinical gestalt, what judges refer to as the art of medicine, and it actually has a lot of standing in most courts. Even today, most of what we do is not evidence-based, right? It's clinical gestalt. I remember being taught, you know, from the emergency medicine uh, time there to, in, it, to the importance of documenting lucidity and incompetence, like specifically its words, key words. I don't know if you still feel those. Right, the key words are, you could use, there are a lot of key words, lucid, competent, capacity to understand. Uh, in all 50 states, judges determine competency, incompetency. And so when you write patient incompetent, and you end up in front of a judge who's going to be irritated and is going to ask you, what do you know about incompetency? Are you the one that, that oversees competency hearings? That's me. So capacity is a safer, I think it's a safer term to use, decision-making capacity. Uh, there's another test called the ACE test. You could look it up on Google, A-C-E. Just look up ACE test, decision-making capacity. It was developed in Toronto. It's a simple list of five questions. You can do it in two minutes. And it's been prospectively validated. So these things really don't burden you with a lot of time. I have an advanced directive. 
<clears throat> my advanced directive only becomes active when I lose decision-making capacity, when I become confused. Again, it's something's bare repetition. There has to, you, should, you have a duty to put evidence in the chart that the patient has an advanced directive. And patients fully have the right to revoke advanced directives when they have decision-making capacity. Certify incapacity. The statute says it should be the patient's attending physician and one other physician. That's what that statute says. Uh, now, an, an advanced directive can only tell you to withhold life-sustaining treatment when the patient has a terminal and irreversible condition or they're in a persistent vegetative state. Again, two physicians have to determine that there's an irreversible and terminal condition. And with regard to the permanent vegetative state, it's two physicians, one of whom has to be an expert in cognitive disorders. That's what the statute says. Maybe that could be a neurologist, psychiatrist, maybe a neurosurgeon. So the statute's a little vague about that, but it says someone who's an expert in cognitive dysfunction. You have no liability as long as you abide by these general rules and you carry out the patient's wishes as documented in their advance directive. Like if you don't, in the Karen Ann Quinlan case, which was, was decided by the New Jersey Court of Appeal back in the mid, the New Jersey Supreme Court in the mid-1970s, her attending physician was afraid that he would be arrested for murder if he did not order her to be intubated. There was a real fear because these issues were not really yet worked out by medical ethicists and then later codified by state laws. Okay, but you don't have liability if you follow these appropriate advance directives. Now, have you all filled out most forms? So I'll just go through this really fast. This is a written order, just like when you admit someone and you write orders, this is a written order that's effective all over the state of Maryland in healthcare institutions and paramedic systems are included in this definition of healthcare institutions. So it's like a pre-hospital order that's effective until it's superseded by another order. Uh, so it can be completed by a nurse, by a physician, nurse practitioner. Later the legislature amended the act and they said a PA can complete it. You have to document that you informed the patient or a surrogate and they agree. So we're talking about futility here and whether the patient and their family have to agree because when I talk about the futility law, this is really a central issue. Because when you look at what medical ethicists have written around the country, futility is a medical decision. Like I have people that demand penicillin for a viral URI. That's a very simple, common example of futility. Is penicillin gonna help get rid of a rhinovirus? That's futile. You deal with futility issues that are a lot more important. And I think that's the next slide or the slide after that. Um, so you have to inform the patient. Um, and it says on the most form, the patient and or the surrogate agree with this plan. So even if it's, because we have to fill out forms even when they're transferred to other places. Especially when they're transferred. And if, the, um, if there's no change from prior, I mean, is that still, 
still need to be discussed with the patient's surrogate and be sent to them? Well, if there's no change with the prior, then they've already agreed to it. The question was, do you have to renew the consent? It doesn't hurt to renew the consent, but you already have evidence that they agree with the game plan. Unless things have significantly changed, going back to the liquidity holding, unless things have significantly changed, you don't have to go through that whole consent process again. And a copy has to go to the patient or surrogate within 48 hours. Um, so let's talk about futility. I'm really glad Dr. Silverman's here. I sat on his committee for a while and we talked about futility and, and how the hospital council have uh, interpreted this Maryland futility law. But futility, futile care is ineffective medical care. Okay, it's often applied to end of life issues. But you know, if someone has end stage pulmonary disease, you know, stage four lung cancer, diffuse infiltrates, they're not gonna get better, they're reaching their expected outcome, you've reached the point where maybe you're prolonging death and not life. I mean, th these, are, these are deep issues that we should think about for the balance of our careers. Um, you might decide that intubating the patient is futile, you're prolonging death and not life, and you should empathetically be making the patient as comfortable as possible. You know, depending on all the clinical parameters, that might be a rational decision on your part. Now, again, an attending, the attending physician and one other physician have to document that such and such care is futile. And you know, this statute also says in an emergency department, you only need one physician when no one else is available. It just says you have to inform the family in the statute. It doesn't say they have to agree. I've read it over and over and over again. It says you have to inform the family. And then I think to satisfy certain sectors of our politicians, they put a clause in that said nothing in this statute constitutes mercy killing. We're not killing people. We're making them comfortable um, as they die. Now, our general counsel, I know in the past has said, well, we should not only inform the family, they should agree that this care is futile. Henry, do you want to address that? Well, uh, they, uh, you're right, they don't have to agree, but there's another clause in the statute that says that if the family doesn't agree and it involves a treatment that may cause the death of the patient, then we have an obligation uh, to inform the family that they could transfer the patient to another institution. Now that gets into, you know, obviously a lot of logistical issues and different hospitals in Maryland interprets these two clauses uh, differently. And it, I mean, so what does it mean to um, give the family an opportunity to transfer the patient to another institution, especially in these, situ in these um, scenarios when it might be impossible to transfer the patient to another institution. So it's, it, it is definitely a, a gray zone um, um, depending on the interpretation of these two statutes. And then since 2011, we have the MOLST statute where the legislature has said we have an affirmative duty to inform the patient and or their surrogate and have them agree 
that, you know, maybe our hospital council were right, that I, I think they took a more conservative approach, more conservative than necessary, but I, I think in general it's not bad to be more conservative than you need to be in the world's most dangerous medical legal climate, which is the world you're entering when you finish your fellowship. I mean, you've always got to do things to mitigate your risk. Um, and, and here, you know, it just, it just shows you're leaning over backwards to involve the family uh, if the patient lacks the capacity to understand. And it's just another element in having a really good relationship in, in extremely uh, difficult clinical circumstances. So we have this requirement when I speak to my residents, we have to give them the take-home points. And then I look at the evaluation and they say, what take-home points? Even when I have a slide like this. So these are the take-home points. Patients have a competent patients, patients who clinically have the capacity to understand, have a near absolute right to refuse medical care. You must disclose all material risks of a procedure, a risk that a reasonable, prudent person in the, plain, in the patient's position would want to know before making a decision regarding informed consent. You know exactly who can serve as a surrogate. I gave you the pecking order. You can look up the statute easily. If anyone wants to know how to look up statutes, I can sit down with you in front of a computer. But you know, that's really not your role clinically. Uh, and finally, when is an advance directive effective? And by the way, if the patient tells you they have one and they didn't bring it in, and they've got the capacity to understand, they can give you as much as they can remember orally, like a verbal advance directive, get someone else to witness it, go over to the chart, you know, write it in the chart, type it into EPIC. That's actually a duty once you receive that verbal advance directive. So when, they don't, when no one has the advance directive with them, you know, most of us think, well, gee, that's a waste, it's not here. You can really get some direction from the patient unless they're confused. If there are no questions, oh, okay. I'm glad we have a lot of questions. So, so here's where I get stuck. I've been in Texas for 30 years, odd years. I look at DNR as a procedure, or resuscitation as a procedure, not so much DNR as a procedure. I look at CPR as a procedure. I'm always told by my nurses and all that I have to inform the family that I'm not going to survive CPR. My stance on that is I don't tell the family, I tell the family whether I'm going to give them an antibody or not give them an antibody. And if I don't feel CPR is appropriate in the patient's clinical condition, I don't feel that I am justified to write it if they say you have to do CPR with my patient. I'll, I'll answer this, but I'm interested to see what Henry will say. But it's a futility issue like any other futility issue. The statute says you must inform, or you should inform the family. Our counsel here would prefer that you get them to agree with the whole plan. And so that's the gray zone that Henry referred to. But what do you think about that? Uh, yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, um, on one hand, it seems odd that you're asking consent not to do a procedure. But be that as it may, CPR represents that one procedure in which you need consent not to do. Uh, and also, as Larry pointed out, it represents foregoing about life-sustaining treatment. 
and and if you think it's futile, according to the statute, you need to inform the family. So that's pretty much what I do, but I don't yeah. necessarily agree with the family doesn't agree. I don't agree with them, and I still do not do this appeal. I just put in the note the family didn't agree, and they were informed. What do you think of that? My, our lawyers, <laughs> our lawyers here really hate when I do that, but then I work very hard with the family, and then I'll even let them. See that I think I think I'm getting close. That would for me to answer that I would be getting close to the point of giving you specific legal advice. Yeah. I would really discuss that with hospital counsel, and uh, I, I would go in the direction they thought was uh, yeah. safest. Uh, there's someone behind you that had his hand up for a while. Sorry, I just want to go back to when uh, when families are in disagreement with an advanced directive. So if someone comes in and they are critically ill, and let's say you have a copy of their advanced directive that says that they do not want life-sustaining therapy, but the family is there and they say, no, we, I want to cancel that, we want everything done. What would be the best thing to do in that situation? Okay, you know what? I don't want to give Henry too much business because I know he's otherwise busy clinically, but his committee is a great resource. But this is another example where in the statute they say there are conflicts. Like what if has, someone has two adult children and there's no advanced directive and the two children don't agree on anything? Or what if the advanced directive says one thing and the surrogate is disagreeing? I, I think in most cases, the advanced directive should control. I mean, that's my opinion, but it's a conflict that maybe his committee could work out, and I think very rarely it would have to go further, but what do you think? Well, I, I agree with you. I think the short answer is that the advanced directive is controlling. The longer answer is context specific because the family may say, well, he, he told us to ignore that advanced directive. So again, the long answer depends on the context, but I agree with you. The short answer is that the, we have to tell the family the advanced directive is controlling. You tell, you tell us why we should not listen to the advanced directive. And I guess if there's any doubt then, or the family, you know, separates and says, "Oh, we understand it to be this, to be the case." To, I guess, perform all the necessary care and get ethics on board as quickly as possible. Because that sounds reasonable. Yeah, that's. It's reasonable. Yes. You and they do. Yes, sir. So this kind of goes back to what Dr. Hurl was saying about having a futile situation with a patient that goes to the ethics committee and say the ethics committee you know, deems that. Family's not agreeing with the physician's you know, futility in the case, but we agree that this is a futile case. The ethics committee says it's futile. We go from that, but at the same time, it goes to counsel. And because of their disagreement, the family doesn't agree. The counsel says, well, we can't really say and agree with the futility in this case. Who wins that battle between ethics and counsel? I, I think it's very fact intensive and it depends on, on, on every case, but how do you resolve those, Henry? Well, it, uh, 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 it, again, it really depends on the context. If counsel is not disagreeing that the treatment is futile, counsels, uh, the general counsels are not clinicians. They can't disagree or agree with the fact of futility. What they disagree with is, is the process. According to them, the process should be inform the family and 
give them the opportunity to transfer the patient uh, if they so desire. Uh, and then after that, I mean, uh, general counsel here will, uh, if necessary, their, their belief is that to override the family, in most cases, we should go to court. So, because, because counsel here, as Larry said, they're taking the conservative approach. Uh, however, um, you know, I, I do believe that in certain situations we may be able to, you know, convince the council, hey, listen, this is getting, you know, a little, a little disconcerting. I, I will say that, um, 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 and I agree with this, uh, general counsel says because of this extra clause in the law, okay, uh, we should be using the language, is it consistent with uh, the standard of care? And, and, and hence, uh, one, one is able not to escalate further treatment. Okay? If you don't think it's, if you don't think it's consistent with standard medical care, so let's say if you don't want to give further blood transfusion, or escalate pressures, or put someone on dialysis even, if you think it's going to harm the patient, okay? Um, one will be supportive with that, but once you get into the issue of taking patients off the ventilator, when the family is not agreeing to that, that just brings up a lot of, a lot of uh, difficult contextual I feel like we're out of time, but uh, I've noticed that we were in a case where the court was uh, incredibly myopic. Had a man with end-stage cancer who was going to die imminently, and we asked for a DNR status. Nobody else could offer that. And the judge asked, well, why do you do a DNR to restart the heart? Do you think you could restart the heart? Well, yeah. Okay, then it's not futile. It was a stunning turnaround, but a very narrow look at things. Anyway. Henry may have had some success with this um, transfer process. I have never, ever, ever once been able to transfer a person who's at the end of life where you're having these kind of negotiations. Um, there are some barriers. I work in the ICU transferring from a high level to a low level ICU. You have some insurance carrier barriers. Either way, what is our obligation if we are investigating this transfer? I always offer it. But I really don't know whether it's a family's obligation to find a doctor in a hospital or whether it's ours. I would say the standard of care is to have physician-to-physician -physician contact. That's a national standard of practice. Like Antala requires that, to transfer a patient. Uh, we transferred your last patient to Midtown. Right? Like. If, if, you, if, the fam, if the family say once transfer, is it our duty to say, okay, let me call Hopkins and see if I can find an accepting position? Nope, let me call this other hospital. No, but if the family's refusing further care here, then it's, the issue is a refusal. And then under these laws, it says if they're refusing further care, one option is to transfer elsewhere. 
you might feel the patient's unstable for transfer and you, you can get a court order as an effort of last resort to keep them here. But, but this is so clear. It's their job to find the hospital, the doctor, and then we talk doctor to doctor, great. Or is it our job to do as Andrew's saying, search the whole state? Okay, I've, I'll give you a direct answer. I've never seen a statute or a court opinion that answers that question, but I will, I will say that the act of transfer as a national standard of practice is a physician-to-physician -physician activity. That's the second level. Okay. Um, we are out of time. I'm in no hurry. If anyone has any other questions or wants to know the answers, these are four questions that usually come up. Uh, I think only two of them apply to you, whether we can obtain informed consent after we give opiates to a patient. Can a Jehovah's Witness uh, refuse a blood transfusion for their child? We all know they can refuse a child for themselves. If anyone wants to talk about these issues, I'm in no hurry, but I think our, our time is up. And thanks for all the questions and thanks for the attendings. Uh, Dr. Silverman, I'm really glad you were here. It added a lot to the discussion. Um, Thank you. Sure.